All right, church, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We are going to continue our study through this book. If it's the last thing we do. Amen. And the title is the same as it was last week. Our struggle with the remnants of sin. Our struggle with the remnants of sin. The passage we are going to read is up on your screen. And in today's lesson, uh, we're we're going to consider two main points from this one particular passage. The one has to do with the law, since Paul the Apostle over and over introduces conversation about the law. And then the second point has to do with our sinful nature. Uh, Because the law, according to Paul, actually served to expose sin within us. But of course, we need to bear in mind as we listen to Paul on this particular subject, that he is teaching this passage in view of salvation. In other words, there is no element of condemnation in this particular passage to those of us who know Jesus. And, and also, there's, he's not giving off the idea that somehow we need to mix grace with the law. That's not what's happening here. Paul the, Paul the Apostle is just simply highlighting these two things in this passage. Uh, the theme that I've set for us this morning is, of course, the nature of man. The nature of man. And the reason why I selected this particular theme is because Paul the Apostle actually goes... To great lengths to describe the impact of the law upon the life of every single person or every single observer of the law. And I want to ask two questions before we read this text. A couple of questions before we dive into this one particular passage. And these questions are intended to set the tone for the lesson. And I want you to bear these things in mind. Number one... What is it about us that makes us gravitate to sin? What is it about us that makes us gravitate to sin? And this is going to go along along the lines of Paul's subject concerning the sinful nature. Another question is, why are we so fundamentally rebellious? Now, I know that we are saved, so I'm not asking that question uh, to sort of cast doubt on that fact, right? We, we know Jesus. In fact, let me see your hand if you know Jesus, right? But the idea is that we, we possess this sinful nature within us, right? And, and it sort of makes us rebellious toward God in so many different ways. I want you to read with me Romans 7, 7 through 12. Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 7. <coughs> It says, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For for apart from the law... (coughs) Sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning, and thank you so much for allowing us to come into your presence to worship you thus far up until this point. Father, may you give us the grace to understand what it is you desire for us to hear from your word this morning. Give us the understanding, Lord God, that we need to apply these truths to our lives. We love you, we praise you, and we give you thanks in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said... Last week, we highlighted a very important subject from this one uh, particular chapter. And it's the idea concerning the fact that we are dead to the law. How many remember that from last week? Paul the Apostle took 
a lot of time to make sure that his audience, that the Romans, especially the, the Jewish converts, that they understood that they were dead to the law if indeed they had given themselves over to Jesus Christ. Uh, and one of the things that we took note of from the particular passage is that many of Paul's readers did not thoroughly grasp this idea of being dead to the law. Um, they, they, in, in fact, in fact, in society today, many, many, many churches do not necessarily grasp the idea of being dead to the law. Uh, many of you know it. Some of you probably know it better than I do. That in today's circles in Christendom, uh, we struggle with the notion of the law. Uh, there are many denominations for, for whatever reason, actually mix certain elements of the law with the elements of grace. And that ought not to be done. It should not be the case. Some of Paul's readers, we highlighted last week, had difficulty accepting the idea that salvation was possible outside of the law. How many, how many of you know in the service here this morning that we have salvation totally and completely apart from the law? How many know that? Amen. It's called grace. So the message of the gospel is that we are free to live life, that we are free to live life for the Lord in righteousness because of Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection. Look at verse 4. In Romans 7, there's an interesting clause there. And it says, in the text it says that we belong to God. Now, now this is in view of the fact that we are dead to the law. And because of that, we belong to God. And it's the idea of sanctification. We presented that last week. That because of what Jesus did for every single one of us, because of the fact that the law has been stripped away or abolished or removed... We stand justified in the presence of God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. In other words, we belong to God. It's that idea that I presented over and over again, that we are no longer a part of the kingdom of God. We are now, if we know Jesus personally, we are part of the kingdom of God here on this side, here on earth, this side of heaven. That we are pilgrims. We are in this world, but we are not of it. And in verse 6, it says that we are able to live life in the new way. In the new and living way. In what way? In the spirit. Because of the fact that we are dead to the law, we can actually live for God in a very meaningful way. In the new and living way. By the spirit of God. Amen, somebody. I don't know about you, but I remember when I accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, my spirit came alive and God granted me the opportunity to truly live for him. In this one particular text, we also may note of the fact that Paul the Apostle was addressing Roman Jews. He was addressing Roman Jews when he was talking about dead to the law because he wanted them to thoroughly understand that it wasn't necessary to observe the law while in Christ Jesus. That... that we don't have to mix the two together in order to be saved. We have a lot of denominations like that today. Nevertheless, even though he was addressing the Jews, it applies to you and I as well. But in context, Paul was telling the Jews who believed in Jesus that they were free from the ritualistic service to the law. And that moving forward, they did not have to mix the law with grace. I want you to look at verse 7 with me. <clears throat> this morning. But let me give you a verse. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles. Before we read verse 7, I want you to turn in your Bibles with me. Go to, go to John 4.23. Keep your finger on Romans 7. But go to John 4.23 because I want you to see this point. I was going to skip it, but uh, I'm not going to do that. John chapter 4. And this particular passage highlights what you and I get to enjoy today. It highlights what Jesus Christ was addressing. Jesus was a Jew. He was preaching the gospel to the Jews. And he said this to the Jews in, in John 4.23. He says, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Amen. It applied to the Jews, but it applies to you and I as well. Jesus was alluding to this new life that we get to enjoy in Him because we know Him by the Spirit. Nevertheless, Paul moves on, and we're going to move on. Paul moves on in Romans 7. He moves on from this particular narrative in order to address a concern that he had about his audience. He, he thought that his audience may have in, misunderstood what he was saying to them about the law, especially after all those things about grace that he was talking about. The question he asks in Romans 7 is, is the law sinful? Is the law sinful? Look at the verse. It says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? He actually meant that the law is sinful. Is the law sinful? And then he says, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Is the law sinful? He responds, by no means. But look at the way he began that particular verse. He says, what then shall we say? What then shall we say? And it's the reason why I made mention, uh, I made the statement about a possible negative impression on the part of his Roman audience. With that particular clause, what then shall we say? Paul the Apostle is referring to everything he stated before he made that particular statement. Everything that he's been saying so far in this book, from Romans chapter 1, verse 1, to Romans chapter 7, every statement that he made about freedom in Christ Jesus, about justification and sanctification, about being dead to the law, this new life that we get to enjoy in Jesus Christ, all of those wonderful points that he made up to this point, he feared that his Jewish audience misunderstood. They probably figure, well, since he's talking about making all this noise about grace, is it possible that the law was sinful from the very beginning? Is it possible that we need to remove it altogether, that we should have always removed it because it is somehow sinful? And Paul the Apostle says, no, absolutely not. And so we add, I could almost hear Paul the Apostle making this statement. In view of everything that I've told you concerning salvation apart from the law, do we conclude the law to be sinful? And his response is, absolutely not. God forbid. I could hear him re continuing on. Because we are saved without it, and it, only and it only served to condemn us before God, does that mean it is sinful? And the response is, by no means. To say that the law was sinful or imperfect, it's like saying that it somehow depreciated. How many of you ever bought a brand new car? I bought a brand new car once, once. I bought a Toyota Sequoia in 2002. It was brand new. It had eight miles on it. And, and how many of you know that, that when you purchased your brand new car, once you got it off the lot, it immediately depreciated? If you tried to sell it back to the dealership, it wouldn't be worth the same amount. Or it's worth that high value to them, but not to you and I. So if I sought to sell that Toyota Sequoia in the street, I bought it for 42000 because it was loaded. Probably would have got 30000 for it. It's the nature of the car business. And, and so the, if we apply that concept to this particular passage, you got many people who felt concerning the law, because the subject is the law, that God gave the law and that somehow immediately after he gave it, that somehow it depreciated in value. And in effect, that God is at fault for our sinful problem. And Paul the Apostle says, by no means. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's never been anything wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with God. God is not responsible for the sin that mankind is experiencing. That we are responsible for that. And Paul the Apostle highlights this. Look at verse 7 again. Because the question now is, what was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the law? And in verse 7... We find that answer. Paul the Apostle says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. I think Paul the Apostle is essentially saying, I am personally aware of my sinful nature because the law has exposed it within me. And so the principle is this. The law was instituted to give us knowledge of sin and of its existence within us. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 3 because I want you to see this. The law was instituted to give us knowledge of sin. That's the principle. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the knowledge comes, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, I want to back up a little bit because I want you to track with me. I want you to understand what I'm saying here. The one statement that I made is that the law is not responsible for my sinful nature. That's, that's the statement, right? That the sinful nature always resided in us, at least ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the very beginning. The purpose of the law was just simply to expose what we possessed on the inside all along. I want you to turn over because I want you to see this a little bit further. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read this twice today. It's not in the notes to be read now, but I want you to see it. And then I'm going to read it again a little bit later to make a point later. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is is the law, the power, the, the unction, the es- not the essence, the, the substance, if you will. <clears throat> so the intent of the law was to expose us, to reveal our true identity by stripping us of our masks. Stripping us of our masks. But I want to make a note here, and it's something that I may have already touched on. The law didn't produce sin within us. It merely manifested the nature we already have. How many know that when you got saved, when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, you were already a sinner? In fact, we gave our lives over to Jesus Christ to be saved because we understood the fact that we were sinners. But think in terms of the, think it's difficult for us to put ourselves in the, in the position of the Jew, the audience, Paul the Apostle's audience in, the, in this particular chapter, because we are not Jews. I mean, there may be a Jew here, but think of the way his Jewish audience was understanding this thing. They had difficulty with it. They couldn't understand what he was talking about. And so they felt as if the law was somehow imperfect. And Paul goes on to express That the law is not perfect. I mean that the law is perfect. That there's nothing wrong with it. There's never been anything wrong with the law. That the problem lies within you and us. I mean you and I. Now I want you to look over. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 3 because I want you to see this. In Genesis chapter 3, look at verses 7 through 10. You there? Say amen. Amen. Genesis 3, 7 through 10. It reads, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And I hid myself. So it was ever since then, 
mankind dealing with the, the, this reality concerning the sinful nature has been hiding from God, has been running from God. The problem has always been with us and not with God. The problem has always been with mankind, with our nature, our fallen nature, and never with the law of God. And the Jews had difficulty understanding that. Now go back to your text, Romans 7, because I want you to listen to Paul expound on this subject a little bit more. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, but sin, season and opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law... Sin lies dead. I'm going to read that again. But sin, notice what it says. It says, but sin, not the law, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. What is he saying produced in him all kinds of covetousness? Sin. Then he goes on to say, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. To me, this is an amazing revelation concerning the human experience. It's amazing because for me, it answered a whole lot of questions. The principle here is this. The principle in this verse not only serves to answer questions about our personal experience with sin, but also questions about why the world is in its current spiritual condition. For years, all types of scientists and educators have tried to answer life's most fundamental questions, but to no avail. And it's because they choose to ignore what the Bible has been saying all along about mankind's rebellion against God. Our most fundamental problem has always been the existence of our sinful nature. The government is always, always throwing money and all types of resources at society's problems today. But why is it that we always choose to ignore the fundamental problem that exists in society today? Our sinful nature. And I think in t- in, until we learn how to uh, take ownership of what we possess, this is as a general blanket statement. Until society learns how to take ownership of the problem that we possess on the inside, we're never going to get it right. You notice how when Paul the Apostle talks about the sinful nature relative to the law or in view of the law, sin always manifests itself. And consider the way society is today. Consider when you give somebody instructions. What happens almost immediately after you give somebody instructions? I got an illustration here. It's probably further along in the notes, but I'm going to insert it here. What happens for those of you who are mothers? And, and, and do you remember when, you, when your children were small and in your home? And you were in the kitchen probably cooking something, cooking a meal for your family. And the stove was hot. And you know in your subconscious mind you got to keep your children away from the stove, right? And then for whatever reason... Once you think about that, your children, I've had my hands burned on the stove before. The child walks up to the stove. You tell the child not to touch the stove because the stove is hot. And no sooner those words come out of your mouth, you turn your back on the child and immediately they go the hand onto the stove. The child gets burned. What is it about the commandment? What is it about instructions that bring out the worst of us? At least initially. In time, as we mature and we grow and we develop in the things of God, we learn how to honor God. We learn how to respect God and take Him at His word. We learn how to appreciate His instructions because we know better now, right? Because we know better. But initially, that's never the case. And especially for the person who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's the reason why we have sexual immorality so, so rampant in society today. It's the reason why drug addiction is what it is in society today. It's the reason why there's so much crime, so much vandalism, so much nonsense occurring in society today. It's because the law says you shall not do this, and because they don't know Jesus, it's like an automatic default response. Paul the Apostle gets into this in a few moments, and I want you to see this with me. In this one particular verse, he says that apart from the law, 
sin lies dead. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. That, the, I got to admit, the very first time I read that, I had difficulty wrapping my mind around it. Because it just doesn't make sense. What is it that Paul the Apostle is saying here? He's sort of, he's sort of reiterating something already mentioned. And it's the reason why we read Romans 3.20. That through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's also the reason why we read 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But what's he saying when he says that, when he says that sin lies dead? The meaning is that sin is inactive. The sin is inactive. He's not saying that we are sinless. That's not what he's saying. The sin is Inactive. I'm going to try to explain it a little bit better here by reading a quote to you from a theologian by the name of Kenneth West. He says, without the incitement, incitement produced by the law, the evil nature was relatively dormant. A fulcrum. How many ever heard that, heard that word before? A fulcrum. It's like a crowbar. So when I use the word fulcrum, you think of a crowbar or a pry bar. Without the incitement produced by the law, the evil nature was relatively dormant. A fulcrum is an instrument in the form of a pole or long stick, which when applied beneath an object, would pry that object loose from its position. Just so the sinful nature uses the law as a fulcrum or as a crowbar by which to pry itself loose from its relative inactivity into activity. I tried wrapping my mind around that. I left it alone. <clears throat> Look at verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now I want to share an illustration with you. And it's not a perfect illustration by no means. <clears throat> but to me as I thought about that, as I thought about it, it kind of helped me to understand what Paul the Apostle is saying here. And the illustration is about a policeman who was dispatched to check up on a warehouse property. In the warehouse on the inside, it was dark. Uh, <clears throat> it was dark on the inside. And the only, the only thing that the police officer had to actually assist him in navigating himself through this warehouse was the flashlight that he had in his hand. Right? We all know about that. The light exposed everything inside the warehouse. The light enabled him to make his way through the warehouse until he finished the entire process. And all clear. He gave the all clear to his dispatcher. Now, there's a problem here. The problem is that his light also exposed and aroused the sleeping Rottweilers. There were dogs on the inside of the warehouse. It was a quiet Quiet warehouse, there was nothing going on in the warehouse. There were no thieves in the warehouse. There were Rottweilers who were actually there in chains to protect, right? To guard the property, to guard and protect the valuables in the warehouse. And here comes this officer, and he's actually disturbing. He's arousing the Rottweilers. So the policeman represents an encounter with the righteous law. <clears throat> the inactivity in the warehouse Represents our innocence before the introduction of the law. Our innocence before the introduction of the law. The inactivity in the warehouse represents our innocence before the introduction of the law in our lives. The policeman represents an encounter with the righteous law. The presence of Rottweilers represents the inactivity of our sinful nature, although we are sinners nonetheless. And the arousing dogs represent the activity of sin in our lives after the introduction of the law. Now, I know that's complicated. It probably went over your head already. But I want you to consider this. I want you to look at the verses. Look at verse 9 again. And we're going to try to apply this as we go. Verse 9 says, 
Paul says, I was alive apart from the law. I was alive apart from the law. Is he saying that he was saved before the law? Is that what he's saying? No, I don't, I don't, I, I think we can safely rule that out. <clears throat> because nobody talked more about the law, nobody talked more about the existence of our sinful nature than Paul the Apostle did. Is he saying that he was sinless? I don't think so. I think we can rule that out as well. I mean, that would be crazy. The only way I can explain it is this. He may have been referring to his innocent childhood before the motions and conviction of sin invaded his consciousness. We like to think about the illustration of a child. Say, from birth to the age of accountability. We like to think that when a child dies, a child goes directly to heaven. At least that's how I see it. At least that's how I understand it. Because of the innocence of the child. Take a five-year-old child who, de- who does not necessarily understand right from wrong. That child is innocent. And if that child is being well-raised, that child will follow automatically his or her parents' instructions. Why? Because of the innocence of a child. But then there comes a time of accountability. Say the age of 10, 11, 12, 13. I don't know. I think it's different for every child, right? And somehow, some way, the, the consciousness is awakened within that person. And now that child understands right from wrong. Now you got to hold that child accountable. Somehow, some way, we got to convey biblical truth about Jesus Christ to that child so that he or she may give themselves over to Jesus Christ personally. Right? At least that's how I understand it. And Paul the Apostle was sort of referring uh, to that sort of stuff when he says, I was, <clears throat> says, <clears throat> I was alive apart from the law. I was alive apart from the law. He wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect in no way, shape, or form. I was alive apart from the law. Look at verse 9 again. He says that when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And by the way, he's talking about the commandment of covetousness that he referred to a few verses prior, which by the way is a reference to the 10th commandment, covetousness or lust. Thou shalt not covet, or thou shalt not lust. It's the tenth commandment. And here's another quote from John Murray. He says, The commandment is undoubtedly the coming home to his consciousness and the registration in consciousness by which sin took occasion to work in him all manner of covetous lust. Now, I'm like, really? I, I, I didn't understand that either when I first read it. But for example, as in the case of the child when he reaches the age of accountability, we talked about that. But also, as in the illustration when the Rottweilers were disturbed by the policemen. The Rottweilers were asleep until the policeman entered the premises and shone his light upon them. He aroused them. And it's the same thing that happens to you and I every single time. Before you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, whenever somebody introduced an instruction, a commandment, some responsibility, our sinful nature flared up, and we did almost everything possible to violate the commandment. I don't know about you, but that's what my nature was before I came to Jesus Christ. There wasn't anything I kept myself from. I did everything in my power to violate every commandment that was given to me. And it's the reason why I ended up in, you know, <clears throat> in college. That's exactly right. Who said that? Yeah. It's the reason why I ended up in college. Now, I want you to consider something as a personal response to this. I remember the time when I was exposed to the gospel in a chapel service long ago. And prior to that experience, I too was filled with self-assurance. How many remember that? This is kind of trying to make sense of what Paul the Apostle was saying. How many of you remember that before you came to Jesus, you you were filled with self-complacency? Which is the same thing an innocent child is filled with. Self-assurance. Because of ignorance. Because of the lack of knowledge concerning sin or the subject of sin. But then the age of accountability. I was in a prison chapel. Somebody talked to me about Jesus Christ. 
and my, he destroyed my entire worldview. He destroyed my entire worldview. Now, granted, I didn't give myself to Jesus Christ that day right away, but I was never the same after that. Never, because now I understood why I was the way that I was and that I had to make a decision for Jesus Christ. And sooner or later, I had to make that decision. I was self-assured before that first sermon. I was okay before that first sermon. My life was well before that first sermon, at least in my ignorance. But that truth that was delivered to me woke me up. And destroyed my worldview. Is it possible that somehow Paul the Apostle was referring to that? When he talked about the law. When he talked about those things that we spoke about already. Look at 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. He said the very commandment that promised life. Proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the law. Through the commandment rather. Deceived me. And through it killed me. And if we think of these verses, as I said before, if we think of these verses from a current Christian worldview, you know, from that grace perspective, uh, we're never going to understand them. Paul was talking like a Jew and about an issue related to the Mosaic law. And we have to understand these verses from that particular context. I don't know when his conscience was awakened to sin. And consequently, when he realized the need for God in his life. But we do know, according to the word of God, that the only thing he had to work with was the law. All the apostle had to work with in his life was the law. He didn't know grace too much later in his life. For Christ had not yet been manifested. So the law, according to him, had promised him life. Meaning it promised to lead him, it promised to guide him, it promised to instruct him through life. But, he, but what he found out was that every time he applied himself more and more to following it, he realized he was increasing in knowledge of personal sin. In other words, the law activated sin within him as in the arousing dogs in the illustration. And it's incredible the way the word, the word, the way the word of God does that in our lives. Before, it's the reason why I think, it's the reason why so many people who do not know Jesus, how many of you have shared faith with a family, a family member who doesn't know Jesus? How many of you have shared faith with a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? How many of you have shared faith with a coworker who doesn't know Jesus? Now directly we may not have shared faith. With anybody. But indirectly, if you are living out your faith, you are preaching the gospel by your very essence. Just simply by living and existing around these people, you are conveying biblical truth. And I think that people choose not to come to Christ because, as I stated already, they are self-assured. And somehow, some way, if we could take principles like this one, and if we share them with people, we can maybe lead people to Jesus Christ. And it's the fact that they possess a sinful nature. And all you have to do is lovingly and graciously convey the truth of the Word of God, and conviction immediately sets in. We don't have to bang anybody over the head with the Bible. You don't have to drag anybody to church against their will. You certainly don't have to compel anybody to come down the aisle when, a, when the altar call is, is given. We, we just don't have to do that because we all have a conscience. We all possess a sinful nature. And once, once we come in contact with the truth of the Word of God, it awakens. It sort of activates the sinful nature within us. And we know for ourselves from that point forward that we need Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I think that's incredible. Look at verse 10. The last word in verse 10. It says, which is why he referred, which is the word death. He talked about that. In verse 11, it says, he, he used the word deceived by sin. And the fact is that all the law could do is expose sin, direct us in the way that we should go. But you've got to make note of this. The law doesn't provide sanctification. 
the law doesn't provide restraint. The law does not provide remedial effect of sin. The law serves only to condemn. It exposes the sinful nature. Now remember, you got to think in terms, God bless you. You got to think in terms of the Paul's audience, the Jewish converts in Rome. Think of the way they were trying to process everything that Paul the Apostle was saying about the grace, about the grace of God and justification and all these wonderful things that you and I have in Christ Jesus. So, well, wait a minute. Is the law sinful then? No, Paul the Apostle says, by no means. The law is actually perfect. And it serves to expose sin within us. It doesn't perfect. It doesn't complete the process. And it's the reason why so many, so many of us, so many denominations in Christendom today, when they try to mix the law with grace, they only end up compromising the gospel. It doesn't work after that. It's not capable of working or functioning when you violate it by introducing the law. I so, I'm so grateful to Jesus Christ that I don't have to look to any precept, any commandment, any instruction like that whatsoever to be justified in His presence. All I have to do is accept Jesus and know Him personally. Amen, church. Look at verse 12. I like this verse, and this is the last verse. We're not going to read 13. This is the last verse. It says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The idea here is that the law reflects the character of God, and is the transcript. I like that. And is the transcript of His perfection. Imagine, when when God gave His people the law, He gave them Himself perfectly. But of course, the law, as I stated already, did not possess the capacity to perfect them. The author of the book of Hebrews goes into that subject. Day after day, the priest stands before the congregation, offering sacrifices over and over again to no avail because it doesn't perfect. It doesn't restrain. It doesn't provide the ultimate solution to our problem. It merely condemns us. But it doesn't mean that it's imperfect. Because the law reflects the perfect character of God. Number one, as holy, the commandment reflects the purity of God. Which is why the law demands so much from us. Number Number two, the verse uses the word righteous. It reflects the equity of God, which is why the law demands perfection from us. And number three, and lastly, Paul the Apostle used the word good when he described the law. It promotes man's highest well-being and thus expresses the goodness of God. Amen? Amen? Can I get the worship team to come up at this time? So we have an audience here, or at least Paul the Apostle did. He had an audience that was misunderstanding, or at least mischaracterizing, the things that he was saying to them about the law. And and I think it's important for us to understand that, because when you and I fail to understand the law, when we fail to put it in its proper perspective, the default Activity, or the one thing that we do over and over again, especially in churches that emphasize legalism, is that we grow to believe that we have to mix some of these ordinances in with the grace of God in order for us to somehow be made complete. One day we'll look at Galatians chapter 2 and what Paul the Apostle was saying there in that same subject. Stand with me, church. Father, we thank you so much this morning. We thank you so much for your voice. We thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this passage, Lord God, in Romans 7. And for at least in some way, helping us to understand what you were saying through the Apostle Paul. 
And we know these things, Lord God, as a Christian fellowship, as a Christian congregation, we know right from wrong. And we understand that you provided your son on the cross so that we may experience salvation, the salvation of our souls. And we also understand that we don't have to apply the law or some legal systematic into our lives to somehow complete what, you, what you've provided to us in Christ Jesus. We're not going to do that, Lord God. We're, we, we, we're not guilty of that today and we're not going to be guilty of that tomorrow either. We are thankful today, Lord God, that we are saved because of what Jesus did for us so long ago on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for the blood that still flows today in some sense, Lord God, cleansing us of our sin. And the blood that's flowing even today, Lord God, granting an opportunity for anyone in society today who does not know you to come to faith in Jesus and to experience salvation. Father, I pray for our fellowship here, just like I pray for society around us, for the people who do not know you personally, Lord. For the people perhaps who have not heard the gospel, or at the very least who haven't responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all of our consciousness to flare up on us today, Lord God. Not in condemnation, because that matter is already settled in Jesus Christ. But Father, so that we may understand the responsibility that you want us to live out because we know Jesus. And I pray that you may help us, Lord God, with the wisdom necessary to convey these truths, Lord God, to our friends and relatives and our co-workers who do not know you personally. That through the word of God, they may receive the conviction of sin as well as the knowledge of how they can come to saving the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today and we praise you in the wonderful and mighty name of Jesus Christ. And God's people say, let us sing. All right. So this song was written in, during World War I, God Bless America, by Irving Berlin. Let's make it kind of our prayer that we continue to pray for America, that God will bless us, that we'll try to strive for him and, and make, him, uh, make him known and make him glorified.
church. And as we close in prayer, please remember those who are sick among us. Um, remember Joyce in your prayers. Um, Ron and um, Joyce, as well as um, the daughter Lisa. Um, Ron, your daughter's name is? My daughter's name is Tammy, but my son's name is Robert. Robert, Robert but Tammy is sick as well? Is she the No? It's Robert with the back pain. Who is it in your family that has cancer? Struggling? Nobody. Nobody? Who? Rhonda? Rhonda? Our Rhonda? Okay, your family. Okay. So, um, who else? Who else sick? Who else should we be praying? Just Sandra Molina. Is she still in the hospital? No? Okay. Anybody else? Just, just say a name so that we know. Your, mo- your mother, yes. Um, anybody else? Just put a name out there. Okay. Evelyn Collazo back in Philadelphia. You? For Stella? Stella? Gary Popeye has some surgery in another couple of weeks. In another couple of weeks. Anybody else? Just put a name out there. Come on. Kathy. Kathy? Your daughter, Kathy? My daughter. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for service today. And we thank you for the this opportunity to come before you in prayer. Father, we do so intently. We bring our families before you, our friends before you, our relatives before you, our church family before you. There are so many among us, Father God, who are sickly, who are ill, one way or another. Think of Lisa with cancer. Think of Joyce, who's also struggling with cancer. I think of Rhonda and... Um, Ron, your son, with the back problems. Um, Gary, who's going to undergo surgery soon. I think of my sister and my mama. Eileen, Lord God, with her, her knees. I'm always praying for her. I pray that you bless her. I pray that you bless those mentioned. Um, I, pray that, I pray that you bless all those that we bear in our hearts right now. Uh, that person, Father God. Yes, that person that we're thinking about. For Stella and Mama over here, uh, to my right, uh, she's requesting prayer. And for so many, Lord God, represented by this congregation, and, and so many relatives, our, our friend Evelyn Collazo back east, and my mother and her knees back east, my mother-in-law with her fibromyalgia and her uh, chronic arthritis and something else that she's struggling with. Um, there are so many in our lives, Lord God, who are struggling with sickness and disease. We bring them before you, Lord God, because we believe. Because we believe that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above what we could ever ask or imagine. May you bless our family members, Father God. May you bring healing to their physical bodies. And we thank you so much for it. May you bless us as we leave this place, as we prepare to go our separate ways. May you bring us back tonight, Lord God, for corporate prayer. Uh, but may you be with us, Lord God, as we venture out to our jobs tomorrow and the rest of this week. We thank you for it. We bless your holy name in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.